0: Good morning. Happy Monday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay. So kind of an odd day. This is a a holiday. Um, Please take into consideration those people that are are most important. Um, And and those are the people that we celebrate, the people that have done things um, for us, given everything and um, continue to do so. And so I appreciate all of you very much, and um, I hope that everyone else does as well. Okay, I'm gonna dive right into a, a, a Q&A here um, from Michael, uh, or Mike. Um, Mike says, I came across your YouTube video on the Camperini deadlift. Says a hip mobility drill prior to squats. Can you explain what's happening at the pelvis and sacrum on the back side leg and the front side leg? Um, are you regaining posterior expansion on the back leg just above the pelvis? So really good question. And I think that that you're already kind of on on track there, Mike, uh, as far as what your thought process is. But let's go ahead and and let's break this down just a little bit more as to um, what's going on prior to why we would select this activity. And then a little bit on the execution as far as the mechanics are concerned. Um, If you have any questions about how it's executed, um, just just go to the YouTube channel and, and check out that. That, uh, that variation of the uh, staggered stance deadlift. But so if we, look at, if we look at pelvic mechanics, and we'll just, we'll pick on the left side, cause it's easy. <clears throat> so if I have a, a posterior compressive strategy here that, that closes this space and pushes the pelvis in, in, into an orientation where it's, it's going to be turning to, to the right. So I've got a lot of concentric orientation here um, what I'm going to see from a measurement standpoint, I'll see a limited traditional um, hip internal rotation measure. I'll also see limited hip flexion and straight leg raise in many of those cases. And so what I need to do is, is recapture some eccentric orientation here. And I need to reorient the pelvis into into a, a left turn um, to allow me to capture full movement options. And so that's when we would select something something like the, the Camprini deadlift. Um because of the the hip position so we're going to approximate a 90, uh, 90 degree position of the of the pelvis in this forward position at the bottom of the Camperini deadlift so what we're actually doing is we're we're trying to create that eccentric orientation in this lower posterior aspect now because of the way that we hold the weight and because of the position of the weight We're also creating expansion above the pelvis. So we're talking about below the the level of the scapula and the posterior rib cage. So we also need to expand that as well because I've got that iterative effect of this area of the pelvis being analogous to that area of the thorax. So as I move into the the deadlift position, I'm going to be oriented to this 90 degrees that immediately biases me towards an exhalation strategy. So I'm gonna get a concentrically oriented pelvic diaphragm. But the cool thing, because of the the shift in the pelvis this way. And because of the internal rotation that I'm creating, I'm going to open up that space here. So I'm gonna actually create that space. So that gives me the eccentric orientation that I'm looking for under those circumstances. Now, Mikey asked about the other leg. So the cool thing about the other leg is that chances are if i had this compressive strategy here i had the expansive strategy on the opposing side and that's what uh, helped me turn the pelvis to the right and so what i'm actually going to do is i'm going to create a compressive strategy here that that opposes the expansive strategy on the other side so it creates my turn so again i'm 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 sort of robbing peter to pay paul here i'm compressing the right side to create the expansive strategy on the on the left side and and so then I get my return of my internal rotation. I should see the change in the straight leg raise and I should see the change in the hip flexion as well. I'm also going to get carryover into the upper extremity because the chances are those measures were also limited in the upper extremity. So so it's kind of a nice little big bang exercise. It's also got a limited uh, excursion in regards to its stagger. Um, which would prevent me from moving into a compensatory strategy. So if I was to try to move somebody into like a split stance or a half kneeling position, chances are under those circumstances of the initial uh, compressive strategy with the constant orientation, lower posterior aspect of the pelvis, lower posterior aspect of the rib cage, I would, I would fail under those circumstances because I would immediately move them into their compensatory strategy. And And, and in many cases, that's why exercise selection is so important, is that um, you have to respect what strategies these people are using, um, so you don't push them farther into their compensations. And then, if the goal is to restore ranges of motion, we got to keep them within those those active constraints. So, Mike, I hope that that answers your question for you. Um, again, if you have any any further further questions um, in regards to the, to that activity, there is a video on on YouTube. There's actually a couple of representations, I believe using that, that exercise to recapture hip internal rotation. So so check those out. If you have any other questions, please let me know. Go to askbillhartman at gmail.com. Have an outstanding Wednesday, finish your coffee, grab a workout, go for a walk. It's a beautiful day here in, in, in lovely Indianapolis. So um, we're gonna take advantage of that today. And uh, I will see you tomorrow. Good morning, happy Tuesday. I have neuro coffee in hand. And it is perfect as usual. Okay, solid Tuesday coming up. Looking forward to it. Um, got a great question um, from from Jeremy, and Jeremy wants to, to talk a little bit about shape change associated with movement and how do we identify? Um, do we have a relative position change? Is it soft tissue? Do we have end feel situations that can be useful? And and. I'm gonna ramble a little bit probably, but I'm gonna to try to tie all of this together to give what I believe is a is a representative model of of what what is actually going on. Because there are a lot of things to consider when we're talking about about active range of motion versus passive range of motion and fields, etc. Because we have an interaction here of all things. We can't just look at at things from from this limited scope. And I think that some of the modeling that has been Utilized in the past, it misrepresents a lot of things uh, as to how they they change as we move. So, let me grab the pelvis here, um, since you he, he did ask about pelvic shape change. So, one thing that we wanna we wanna always understand is that all movement is shape change. Um, the 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 hard models that we use and the way that they they represent movement. Um, create sort of this representation that that this whole bone is moving and therefore i get this positional uh, adjustment in the acetabulum and that provides me an element of, of range of motion when the reality is is that it is always shape change that is turning this acetabulum so let me give you a for instance so if i wanted to access active range of motion in internal rotation the pelvis has to actually elongate anteriorly to put the acetabulum in that antiverted position to access internal rotation. However, if I'm performing passive range of motion testing on a table on a human on a living breathing human being I am actually inducing that shape change as I move them into passive motion. So if I have them at say 90 degrees of of, uh, hip flexion and I'm going to internally rotate that, that hip, that is me inducing the shape change. So as I push into the acetabulum and I turn them, I have this interaction of the tissues that surround this hip joint. I have the fluid volume in the hip joint itself that is creating the, the, the shape change or promoting the shape change that will allow that pelvis to actually elongate anteriorly, expand anteriorly, and then I can access that internal rotation. So when I am successfully measuring normal hip internal rotation, that's what's happening. However, if I have some form of muscle activity on the front side of the pelvis that is promoting a compressive strategy on the front of the pelvis, as I move that hip into internal rotation, I still have the same interactions of tissues. I still have the same interactions of the fluid volumes in the joint and within the muscles themselves, but I have a compressive strategy that does not allow the fluid volumes or the tissue behavior that allows me to access that internal rotation so there becomes the limitation each of those limitations is going to promote some form of an end feel so if i look at viscoelastic tissues and the way that they're loaded they behave differently under certain circumstances so one of the representations that i always use is silly putty Um, because it, it is viscoelastic in, in its nature, and so it behaves just like viscoelastic tissues do. And so one of the things that we need to represent when we're talking about end feels is that if I, if I pull on viscoelastic tissues very, very slowly, they elongate under, under my tension. So this would be much like a yielding action that would be associated with, with some form of active motion, but I can actually produce these yielding actions passively under these circumstances where I load the tissues very gradually. However If I pull very, very quickly, you'll see that the tissues become very, very stiff, and then it it snaps off very, very clean. So we have to understand that certain tissues are loaded at different rates, even when we're moving someone passively, because if I have concentric orientation of musculature, the surrounding connective tissues within a a reasonable range of that concentric muscle activity are already loaded. And so as I move them through space, they will behave in a uh, stiffer representation than say something that if I was loading it much slower and I had some eccentric orientation that allowed greater movement to occur those tissues might be might be loaded slower and so I'll get a softer end feel that's associated with that so I have to understand that I have these interactions so again it what all this does is allows me to identify one what ranges of motion can I access what strategies do I have that are limiting the shape change of, of in this case the pelvis And then is there any other uh, influences from a a tissue behavior standpoint that might allow me to uh, determine what strategy this individual is using from an eccentric to to concentric yielding to overcoming strategy. And so again, so there's a lot of interactions here that, that I believe are influences in the hip range of motion. But the thing that I want you to understand is is that it is always always a shape change and then the the muscle activity so the compressive strategies that are superficial create a greater stiffness they limit the fluid shifts and so that's why we're going to start to see these deficits in passive range of motion because it is me that is inducing the shape change during passive range of motion it is the individual that has to coordinate the shape change to allow active range of motion so i think if we had to narrow this down to like the, the the big idea of today's Q&A is that all motion is shape change. You're going to be able to do it actively. And I have to be able to represent it passively to know that I do have that shape change available to me under certain circumstances. So again, move, moving somebody on the table is not the same as standing up. So now we have a graded activity structure to our, to our programming to allow this person to go from Yes, we have a passive representation on the table, but can we create an active representation against gravity? And that's a whole different world, but that's why we train people. That's why we move them through these graded activities is to allow them to access the shape changes themselves and hopefully either... Uh, produce an element of health or performance that they seek. So I realized this was kind of like a long drawn out kind of a thing, a little bit of rambling going on, but hopefully I said something that was useful for you. If not, then please ask a question, send it to askbillhartman at gmail.com and I'll see you guys tomorrow. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and It is perfect as usual. So a little behind the scenes action. I'm shooting this later than I normally do. So I'm a little off. Um, so hopefully I'll still be uh, useful to some of you, but I also acquired my foot model from the purple room because I got a question from Eric. Eric said you posted a video of sled dragging for ankle mobility and he wanted me to break down the thought process for why this may help with ankle mobility where other strategies have failed. And so so a couple of things. I, I think when we're talking about ankle mobility, we can't ignore what happens above, and we can't ignore what happens within the foot itself. And, and some of the foot stuff is still ill-defined, I think, nor um, even defined in some cases where where there's a tremendous amount of complexity in all those little bones and such. And so what I want to do is talk through a little bit of a simplified model of the foot um, that, that might help with a little bit of, bit of perspective as far as why this sled dragging uh, concept actually helps with the ankle mobility. I think one of the things that people are looking at because they, they use these, these defined three-dimensional sagittal, frontal, and transverse planes um, is because they get a little confused because they start thinking that the ankle moves in the sagittal plane when the reality is it rotates just like every other joint. So it moves on a, on a helix. Um, just like every other joint does, which is why you see all the diagonal angles and such for axes of motion, as described in the literature. But again, I'm going to really, really simplify this to to a great degree. Um, but when when you're trying to drive sagittal motions, there are things that can interrupt this because it can stop the rotation that would naturally occur within the the mortise within the subtalar joint, the movement of the calcaneus, and the movement through through the, uh, the remainder of the foot. So in the in the sled dragging video, if you watch that video, um, I was walking to my left and so I have a right foot in hand so we're gonna talk about the right foot as far as how we're gonna gain this ankle mobility. And, and one thing that I want you to recognize is this fifth ray has its own little axis of rotation. And so we're gonna use that to help us acquire ankle mobility. So we need this little guy to have its normal rotation. So if you have one of those little pinky toes that tucks under the fourth toe, what I want you to recognize is that fifth ray is, is and my definition is externally rotated. And what we need is to to capture normal ankle mobility is we need to make sure that it can externally rotate, which would supinate the foot, and it needs to internally rotate, which would provide us a a measure of pronation. And so I think a lot of people are lacking this fifth ray mobility. And so they get stuck in these early phases of of propulsion and they either roll off to the the medial aspect of the foot or they have some other compensatory strategy. So as we walk through As we walk through, I'm going to use this as a surface, as we walk through this lateral sled drag and we land in this supinated position. So we're going to land in relative tibial external rotation, but the talus is already moving towards the traditional plantar flexion adducted position of closed chain pronation. But I'm going to land on this lateral aspect. And what I can do is I can actually put pressure through the fifth ray right there, and I can capture what I would call internal rotation of that of that fifth ray. And in doing so, as I land, I've got a plantar flexed adducted talus, and I can move the tibia from external rotation to internal rotation, so now I start to capture a much more realistic and effective pronated position of the subtalar joint. I'll land on the medial aspect of the of the first ray, which will prevent me from going into too much pronation. I'll capture what we would traditionally call dorsiflexion as I have a normal closed kinetic chain pronation position of the ankle. And then as I push off from the, the medial aspect of the foot, I'll have a, a useful propulsive first ray to push off of because of the landing mechanics sort of landing um, towards the, the uh inside of that that first ray as i push off so i get this full rotation of the tibia across i capture a normal uh subtalar joint position for for pronation which will allow me to access a lot of the ankle mobility that people are lacking once again they tend to get stuck in this position where I don't have normal rotation through the fifth ray, it limits my ability to dorsiflex. And so if I can capture that with that lateral sled drag motion where I'm rolling from the outside of the foot to the inside of the foot and rotating the tibia across as I go, I pick up a lot more ankle mobility. So Eric, I hope that answers your question. Um, the, the foot's a really, really confusing place to look, but I think there are some elements that we can always utilize to, to simplify things. Um, There are also iterations of the foot up the chain, which we can talk about at a future date. But anyway, I wanted to get that out to you and and give you an idea of why I think that 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 lateral sled drag is a useful activity to recapture some of that ankle mobility. So I will see you guys tomorrow at the Coaches and Coffee call on Thursday morning, 6 a.m. Eastern Time, Bill Standard Time. Um there's already a bunch of people that have contacted me about being there so I'm looking forward to that and I will see you tomorrow. Michelle, is this your first call?
1: Yes, it is.
0: Okay, well so since it's your first call you have to start.
1: All right, I'll start. Um can we talk about um overcoming and yielding as it re- as it relates in general to everything but also in specifically to cutting mechanics.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So 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 no yield with the heavy question first. Yes. I know. Like, yeah, we're not. I'm not used to this. I'm used to, I'm used to talking about like you know casual things like like what kind of salsa you having tonight? Exactly. Well, I'm having the best salsa because it's It's actually indoors. I get to go in and everything. Um, okay. So so yielding and overcoming are are descriptions of how the forces are distributed beyond the, the muscle fibers. So it goes into the rest of the stuff, okay? So the rest of the stuff would be connective tissues, all right? So here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about a, a trampoline, okay? And so you ever been on a trampoline? Okay, good.
1: Yes, lots of times when I was growing up we had two trampolines a small one and a larger one
0: okay okay this is awesome then so when so the trampoline's all set up you know, and it's got the springs that attach it to the frame right okay and then you have the center part which is which is what you bounce on right so what i want you to do is i want you to fix the size of the thing that you're bouncing on so the surface that you that you actually bounce on, on the trampoline is fixed okay what we're going to do is we're going to manipulate the tension on the springs, okay? So if I loosen the springs and I get on the trampoline and the trampoline gives way, that's yielding, okay? If I tension up those springs, I make them really, really, really tight. So now the surface is more taut, but the surface is exactly the same as it was when it was was loose. Now, when I get on the surface, there's not as much give way. Right? And, and because the springs are stiffer, then more of that tension actually goes into the frame and into the ground. Okay? That's overcoming. right? Now, I want you to stand on the trampoline when it's yielding. So, on the loose springs, okay? The trampoline's not going to change size but I'm gonna tension the springs while you're standing on it. And so you're actually gonna go up. You feel that? You understand? Okay. So you just went from a yielding contract, uh, or yielding action to an overcoming action. Okay. The way that this happens inside of us is based on the rate of loading associated with the activity the slower the rate of loading, the more yielding you'll have. So, so the, the tissues that approximate the musculature that's doing the work, right? Will, they will start to, sh- they basically elongate, okay? And that creates a dampening effect, right? So let me give you an example of that. Have you ever done a box jump? Okay, so if you jump off of a box, and you come down and you land and you absorb the landing so you're really quiet, but you have to, you, you, you feel that the, that you lower your center of gravity and it takes time for you to come to a halt, okay? All right, that would be a, a representation of yielding in a, in a dynamic activity, okay? If you land and you land hard, at the very end of the jump. So instead of, instead of absorbing it gradually, you go, okay, really hard, overcome. There's a yielding moment. There's always a yielding and overcoming that happen at the same time. I need you to understand that. It's just a bias. So we're doing this to varying degrees. There's a gradient of activity here that we're talking about. Okay. And so, so that is the, that is the representation of what yielding and overcoming is. Okay. So, we're talking about cutting as i st- as i so i'm dynamically moving i'm doing whatever i'm doing whether i'm doing a drill or i'm playing a sport and i'm going to go cut off my right foot okay so i i reach out with my right foot okay it touches the ground and then everything moves in that direction okay and so unless i want to hit a big hard jolt i got to be yielding get it Okay, so initially I'm yielding, but I'm also decelerating. Okay, I'm also changing joint angles. So I have muscles that are changing lengths, and then I have connective tissues that are absorbing force. The rate at which I absorb that force determines whether the tissues are really, really stiff, overcoming, or whether they're softer and yielding. So you see how that's a combination of things but we tend to just represent the the description by the bias, okay? So where you're going to see the biggest overcoming element is at the, like right at the turnaround, you get it? So, so I move into it, I'm yield, 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 less less yield, more overcome, less yield, more overcome, yes, less yield, more overcome, boom, overcome going in the other direction, get it? Okay? But this is happening all the time just to varying degrees, right? And so the the stiffness of tissues behave differently under those circumstances based on the rate, the rate at which they're loaded. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay. Great wrap up to the end of the week. Got a bunch of mentorship calls today, so I'm excited about those. And I got a pretty decent Q&A here from Catherine. Um, so Catherine says, I'm struggling with a patient that literally stands with her pelvis in front of her. Uh, she's an air and saying the typical things that we do in this case are not helping much. She's lost a great deal of internal rotation and external rotation and has a very limited straight leg raise and toe touch, pronated feet, the works. She actually said the works. Um, do you have any strategies that may be helpful? Okay, so let's construct this situation first so we have an idea of, of how somebody gets into this position and then we can kind of talk about how we're gonna work our way out of this because it, it'll be a little counterintuitive to, to uh, what you typically think. So if we grab the pelvis here and we can t- talk about pelvic orientation and position with the understanding that we've got the iteration going on up in the upper thorax. So. Um, we're going to say that this, this person is a narrow ISA. So we have an inhaled position of the pelvis to start, um, which is going to close this lower posterior aspect. So we have an apex of the sacrum that is going to be tucked under. We've got a counter-nutated situation. Now, based on her description of how far this person is into this, we also have an anterior and posterior compressive strategy. So the last ERs and IRs. And so what we're going to eventually see then is we're going to see a lot of activity in this lower area. So you're going to get a lot of superficial activity from, say, lower glute max. Upper glute max is going to be compressive. Adductors are going to be compressive on the front side. So, so you, you have somebody that does not have a lot of excursion in in the hip joints. Um, when you see the loss of the straight leg raise, the, the, the really limited toe touches, you know you've got a lot of muscle activity um, down and through here. You also have the compressive strategies, as we said. Now... <clears throat> So here's end game in this situation. So we'll take every superficial strategy that that we can imagine um, when we're talking about pelvis and rib cage. And so we got somebody that's 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 pretty much squished kind of like that. Okay. And then the last position that they're gonna get into is actually going to be an inhalation compensatory strategy. So, so every other superficial strategy is a compressive strategy for exhalation purposes and to maintain position against gravity um, in the upright. And so the last thing that they're gonna do is they're gonna bend forward at, at about T8. So right at the base of the scapula, they're gonna bend. And so they're, they're gonna have that kind of an orientation on, on the spine. And so this is actually inhalation. So they're actually grabbing the front of the pelvis with rectus abdominis. They're grabbing the front of the pelvis and pulling up, upward. <clears throat> so they're pulling upward on the pelvis. And so they bend at, at that T, T7, T8 um, area on the, on the spine. And that is an inhalation compensatory strategy. Because think about it. If I squeeze with everything on the outside, I still have to have a way to get air in. Okay, But now you have somebody that has zero rotation. So they're, they're getting pushed into the ground. They're trying to push themselves up with all these compensatory strategies, which is why this person is living in, in, in the world of pronation. So you have gotta take gravity out of the equation because that's where the biggest struggle is. So if you try to do anything in these upright positions with this person, at least at the, from the get-go, um, you're probably gonna see a lot of struggle because they cannot expand. So the best strategy to, to, to utilize in this situation is put them on their sides. So start working in sideline. So when we started about talking about shifting the pelvis from side to side, doing that in sideline, doing the same thing with the upper thorax. So those of you who have any, any, uh, uh, skills in the PNF realm are going to be very, very useful for this person. So the, the, the scapular PNFs, the, the pelvic PNFs, inside lying are money in this situation. Um, those of you that have ever done a Feldenkrais course where you look at the segmental rolling associated with Feldenkrais, also very useful in these situations. Because what you have to do is you have to teach this person to release the superficial compensatory compensatory strategies, which are concentric orientation and exhalation all day long. And so no aggressive breathing under these circumstances, a lot of sideline stuff, like I said, a lot of rolling orientations are going to be money here, but you're probably going to have to guide this person at first. And so you're going to have to actually create the ability to turn, but start in sideline, take gravity out of the equation. And I think your success rate is going to Going to uh, actually skyrocket under these circumstances. Once you start to recapture the internal and external rotations, then you can probably go back to some of your your more um, supine, prone, quadruped, supported activities, um, working towards um, you know building them up from the, from the ground, so to speak. Um, Once they get enough hip flexion, shoulder flexion, you can put them into half kneeling situations, but you're probably always going to want to maintain some sort of asymmetrical uh, representation so you don't lose the ability to turn. Quick review, put them in sideline, start to build the ability to, to turn under those circumstances. Using your PNF diagonals, they become money in this situation. Superimpose the breathing on top of that. But it has to be this gentle, progressive kind of in nature because if you do anything too aggressive, all you're going to do is squish them back into position. So hopefully, Catherine, I, I appreciate your question. I hope that's that's helpful for you. Hope everybody has a great weekend. I will see you guys next week.
1: Because uh, it's basically like you're, you're integrating everything from all parts of science and all parts of the universe to come up with this, like, universal theory um of everything pretty much and we just apply it in the in the (laughs) well Well, don't give me that
0: kind (laughs) of credit don't don't ever give me that kind of credit i am an idiot like everyone else okay Uh, so it like
1: um, applies to everything like in the physical in the physical realm when we're talking about um so i'm just curious how how do you explain that to people from for somebody who maybe like really skeptical about um you know, being like, well, why do you do that? It seems like stupid, you
0: know? Well, so so first of all, you, you, need, you need to kind of know who you're talking to, right? So the rule is you meet them at their story and you ask them questions. It's like, well, how do you think it happens, right? And then you can find out a little bit more about how they're thinking, right? Like I understand the whole lever pulling thing because it looks that way, right? But then you run into you run into a few pickles when when you recognize the fact that okay wait a minute so you're telling me that if we're levers and pulleys that means that there has to be fulcrums right but there's no fulcrums like joints don't actually touch there's fluid in between the joints so if the joints don't touch there can't be a fulcrum if there's no fulcrums there's no there's no levers if there's no levers how do you move and so then that leads to that conversation. But again, it's like, and, it, and it's not about being insulting or, or, or saying I'm smarter than you or whatever. It's just a matter of saying, it's like, you know what? It's like, I understand, I understand that, that, that perspective, okay? But I don't agree with it for this reason. And then you just have to be able to provide the, the, the reasoning, right? And, and I'm all for being skeptical. I try to be as skeptical as I can. My, my greatest battle is fighting my own biases. Right. I'm aware that they exist, but I'm, I'm human. And so it's very difficult for me to overcome them. Right. And so you have those conversations with yourself all the time too. Right. Except it's a little bit easier to talk in your own head than it is to talk to someone else. But, but you have, you have to sort of meet them wherever they are. And, and the easiest thing to do is just to ask them and, and, and with great kindness, you just ask them a question. And, you know, and there's nothing wrong with offering your your perspective. It's like, like, my perspective is this because, it's like, you just have to have a reason because. And, and there's also nothing wrong with saying, I'm not really sure how to answer that, but, and then you follow with whatever your but may be, right? Because I'm not certain of everything, right? There's certain things that, that, that make more sense to me, and I will express those freely, right? Because that's that's my perspective. It's like, I have no qualms about being wrong, right? I'm sure there's things that I express that are wrong, but right now they make sense to me and they're useful in my decision-making, right? And so, so again, it's like just bumping into somebody that's skeptical, applaud them, it's like, great that's that's part of being a critical thinker is being skeptical and not just taking things at face value, but that's what I'm doing you know when I talk it's like I'm not taking anything at face value It's like you tell me that this happens, it's like okay, but I have reasons to believe otherwise, right and again, it's just getting more and more information and then trying to as you said, integrate all of this into into one large model, so it doesn't matter and you know there's nothing wrong with starting wherever you start there's no right there's no